This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We are in another COVID-19 episode of remotely socially distancing uh, while we podcast. And today I'm talking with co-founder of Superstition Meadery in Prescott, Arizona, Jeff Herbert. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, if you uh, are a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and uh, got a recent uh, July, June, July uh, logger issue, you will see a, a little uh, feature package, secondary feature package that we did on mead making and a breakout brewer story on Jeff Herbert and uh, Superstition Meadery. So we thought, you know, since we've uh, done the coverage there, we might uh, kind of, you know, poke around the corners and uh, also talk a little bit here on the podcast about uh, process, about vision, about inspiration, about recipe be about uh, uh, ingredients and all of those other things that go into mead making, which is a little bit of a stretch for us here. Obviously, uh, you know, our podcast is primarily or magazine is primarily focused about around beer brewing, but in an interesting way, it seems like the beer audience and the home brewers have particularly uh, uh, found mead attractive. Um, and so uh, we've kind of adopted uh, or mead and beer have kind of become partners here in this kind of communal cultural sense. Uh, before we start the conversation, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Nkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more. Trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premium craft juice blends. Whether you're planning a passion fruit, Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no added sugar or other weird fillers you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Jeff, we uh, we normally start the podcast off with a bit of uh, kind of historical background. It's always interesting to see how people got to where they are, what it was, what those moments were that uh, you know that kind of uh, pushed them in this direction of making craft beverages. Um, what was it for you, and uh, where did it start? And uh, walk me through some of the progress of how you uh, got into making mead, and then uh, decided to start a business around it. Well, that's a great question, and it's kind of a cool story, and totally connects with home brewing. So I think like almost everyone I've met in the industry with few exceptions uh, and the industry being craft beverages at large, right? So it's craft beer, but also I, I would put meat and cider into that. Everyone that I know that's a brewer or an owner or both uh, started out home brewing. And I think the dream of every home brewer is to one day, you know, be able to see their uh, their ideas get to a commercial level. And, and, and there's so many different ways that can happen. So, so for me, it all started um, in, in a very interesting way, I was in Borneo and my undergraduate degree, 
uh, was in anthropology from ASU. And I've always had this interest in culture, history, religion, mythology. And it turns out that Mead's totally intertwined with all those interests, which is cool. So anyways, um, I was in Borneo on this solo trip for a few weeks. And I wanted to go, one of my goals as like an anthropology major was to find, to meet uh, like a a traditional hunter-gatherer tribe. Because I think we're the last generation on earth that will ever have that opportunity right? I mean, there's still about a hundred uncontacted tribes out there. So there's this, you know, it's, it's, it's just this awesome call to adventure. You know, it's a representation of the last frontier of something that, you know, is, is out there that's untouched. And so in Borneo, there's a group of people called the Penan that uh, there's only a couple hundred of them that still live uh, in a traditional way. And I wound up spending a week with, um, with, with a Penan guide in a village, and we wound up finding this semi-nomadic family, the last group that that lived in this part of Borneo. And so it was just kind of this like weird bucket list goal for me that, that kind of came true. And in that process of visiting Borneo, there was this, uh, like a hostel for backpackers on the coast in this town called Miri. And all these different kinds of people would come through there. And one day I was at the bar down below and like the best beer they had was Guinness. So I was sitting there having a Guinness and there's some other travelers there that were staying in this hostel. And one of the guys uh, turned out was a biologist that was doing research there. And it turned out he grew up 10 minutes from where I lived in Arizona. And, you know, we just kind of stayed in touch and uh, he would come home. Uh, to see his parents from like his travels and different jobs he had from time to time. And, uh, and one time at Christmas, he, he said, Hey, I'm going to visit my folks. Uh, you know, do you want to hang out? And I said, yeah, come on by. We'll, we'll have dinner. Well, he brought three homebrew beers with him and, um, I couldn't stop talking about them. And I always was the kind of person that would go to, you know, a craft beer bar back then. I think we just called everything microbrew and, yeah. uh, and, and and I had young kids at the time too, and so it turns out that like going to brew pubs is actually like if you're not in this scene, it might sound counterintuitive, but it's kind of perfect because for kids, you know, they've got like the coloring pages and pretzels and root beers and whatever, and so we would always uh, you know meet up with friends and family groups at like Four Peaks down in Tempe, where you know I mean that was like the bit the big deal you know years ago when we lived in the valley, and uh, and it was just like kind of you know something we'd do once a month or whatever. Well. This homebrew changed everything for me. And I, again, I couldn't stop talking about it. And that was like around Christmas time, 12 years ago. Well, I, I was working for the Phoenix Fire Department, actually retired with 20 years in the system in December. And I got home from the fire station on Father's Day, six months later, after I was introduced to this whole concept of homebrew. And my wife had a homebrew kit and a shelf and a refrigerator in the garage. And I was so excited. I made my first beer that day. And before that was done fermenting, I went to the local homebrew store and I said, hey, I want to make a Chimay clone and I want to make a, a mead. And I was introduced to mead like most people, especially years ago, where I happened to be at the Renaissance Fair with my family. <laughs> and was like, I'll try one of those, like, you know, kind of know what it is, never had it. Sure. And uh Anyways, I, I just thought, hey, it's something I could I could maybe make. Well, let's, let's see. So I was I, I you know with everything I read, it was going to take months to a year before it was going to be ready. So I thought, hey, I'm going to try and make something that'll be ready for Thanksgiving five months down the road. And um, it turned out that my my early meads were better than my early beers by kind of a long shot. So I'm, I thought, well, maybe I'm onto something here. And so that evolved into. Um, you know, a passion where I was brewing, you know, probably every, every other week, you know, making a batch and got into all grain brewing. And, you know, I kept making, I would probably make, you know, 
two beers a month, maybe three, and I would make may- maybe one meet a month or, or less because you know I always thought it was going to take all this time, and it eventually figured out how to speed up that process commercially. We can talk about that later, but uh, yeah, I just got so into it, and I didn't have any friends that were homebrewing. Like everything I, yeah. I knew about was from the internet, from reading books, and magazines, and I just kept applying all of my sort of uh, passion to create new flavors to my homebrewing. Cause I had like, there were times where I would make a traditional style, but I always felt like if I'm going to spend all of this time, you know, it's kind of like 10 hours over a couple of days, I want to do something that's different. And so I might get a Porter recipe and put maple syrup in it or, you know, age it on Oak or whatever it was a little different. And, uh, and I just kept running with that. And like any home brewer, I kept asking myself that question, what would it look like if I went pro one day? And, I saw that uh, the Siebel Institute, which if you don't know uh, Siebel in Chicago and UC Davis are two of the, the best places in the country. Now there's a lot of universities that have brewing programs, but especially then those were kind of like the two spots if you wanted to become a professional brewer. And with my family commitments, my fire commitments, trying to promote at that job, going to you know a multi-month program, especially in Europe, was out of the question. But Siebel had this three-day class called How to Start a Brewery. And I believe I attended the second one they ever put on. And I think that must have been 2010, November. Uh, gosh, that's going back now. Sure. And, uh, and and I'd been homebrewing for a couple of years. And so I get to this class. There's 40 people in the class. And there were folks from Alaska, Panama, Canada. It was quite a diverse group as far as, you know, regional representation. Some folks already had breweries that were there trying to, you know, bring their their, their business to the next level. And so the first question they asked was, who here is an award-winning home brewer? And everyone but, but me raised their hand. And I looked at the guy next to me and I said, they have awards for this stuff? Like, <laughs> I, I just had no clue about like, uh, like homebrew clubs or anything. And so um, beyond everything I learned at Siebel, which was incredible, and I highly recommend that program to anyone looking to, uh, to get into the game professionally, um, I got home and I started entering my homebrew, mead, beer, cider, into contests. And started winning medals and getting really good feedback right away. So that was really nice validation. And so that really helped inspire me and, and boost some confidence uh, as far as, you know, hey, I, I kind of know what tastes good. I'm figuring out how to make these things. And I really thought, you know, I would start a nano brewery. Well, part of of, of this program, uh, as far as getting started, involved uh, my family and I moving to Prescott. So we were living in, in the valley and uh, decided to to try and you know raise our kids in this small town uh, atmosphere because my wife and I grew up on the East Coast in small towns so we wound up leaving the big city I was able to continue working for Phoenix Fire because I could drive down every third day for my 24-hour shift so that was a bit of a, a commitment and a lifestyle change but it was worth it for us and within uh, a month of moving here to this beautiful mountain town with only 40,000 people we went to the closest local winery. It was called Juniper Well Ranch and Vineyards. And I brought some homebrew meat. And before I left, the owners invited us to make our mead there. And I said, huh. well, that's really cool because I was just about to start looking for a, a, like a very small commercial space in town to do either like a nano brewery or a meadery. Well, it turned out that this, this opportunity just meshed perfectly um, with everything that we wanted to do. And I figured out that we could start an alternating proprietorship. And so this is something that uh, anyone can do in, in the brewing world, or I believe, and definitely in the wine world, anywhere in the country. And we were able to establish the first alternating proprietorship in Arizona, and that's for one separate licensed winery 
rents or leases space from another. So there's like the host winery and the guest winery. So when we started about a year after meeting Dave and Linda from Juniper Wall Ranch and Vineyards, and we were interning there, basically, we helped them. We put all my homebrew skills into bottling wine, helping them crush and distend. We, we did everything but prune vines with those guys mm-hmm. for about a year before everything got going. And we built up a good relationship because they had to change their federal winery permit to allow us to be in there. And that was, you know, it's a big commitment. So right. it's kind of like being a business partner in a way, but you know, not directly involved with each other's sure. operations. So we we were the first to do that in Arizona, which allowed me to put about 10 grand on one credit card and have 18 square feet of space to start our <laughs> business. And so in 2012, when we started, we made about 300 gallons of mead and cider. We were the smallest winery in the state of Arizona. By the end of 2017, two expansions later, we made over 29,000 gallons and became the biggest winery in the history of our state uh, and had never made grape wine at the time either, <laughs> which is kind of funny. So um, so that's kind of the story on how we we got going. And there's there's a lot of, you know, side stories and gaps in there, but we, we couldn't have started smaller. And legally, if anyone's listening that's a home brewer, I'm sure this is this will be interesting. As a, a winery, and, and I believe this this is also true for brewing, but but check me on this. You have to make like the minimum amount. There's a minimum. You have to make 200 gallons a year, which is the max any household's allowed to make as a home brewer. So it's kind of funny how those laws come into play. There, that varies state by state, but you're right. There are a number of states that have that kind of minimum production, and there are. Uh, I, I've seen some around here. There was one up in the, the south end of Wyoming that actually had to shut because they weren't meeting the minimum production requirement for for that license. Um, as you envision this idea, it's, you know, for a meadery, um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, your introduction to mead came out of that kind of Renaissance fair and kind of old school mead approach. Um, you know, but then you had this kind of history and background in experimentation with differing ingredients coming out of that homebrew side. Um, what was the inspiration to pull those together? You know, I mean, mead was still, even at the time that you're doing this, a pretty niche thing. I'd say it's probably even still a pretty niche product. Um, but one of the major contributors to the higher profile of mead now has been yours and fellow mead makers um, really pushing a flavor forward approach um, that moves past that or you know embraces that tradition and then you know moves it in a, a an even more contemporary direction. Uh, talk to me about that initial inspiration and uh, you know how you kind of envisioned the products that you were going to make that was going to uh, help mead and the mead that you make grow in a commercial sense. That's a really good question. So I think that my wife and I have always uh, been foodies at heart, uh, even before we could ever afford some of the amazing meals we've had as we've gotten to travel and, and, and really learn about what some of the best in the world can be. And I think that that was definitely a motivation, right, is, is how do you piece together different spices, different ingredients when you're making a meal. And anyone that's homebrewed knows that, you know, making beer is a lot like making soup, you know, and you put all these different ingredients in there, some in the beginning, middle or end, some after the soup's done, right? Um, I don't know. That's just one analogy I used to try and explain to people what, what homebrewing is kind of like. Um, and so you're trying to create this this amazing product. And in my mind, that's going to be diverse in its flavor profile. So when you when you start, when you take your first sip after, you know, you assess the aroma, uh, it should change as it goes across your palate. And there should be a lasting finish and it should be 
balanced unless you're purposefully trying to have something that's so fruit forward or coffee forward or something, maybe something is an imbalance. But for me, I want to have uh, different flavors come together. I want them to be complex and change. I want them to be balanced. And I think that when you look at, I've always been interested in what makes something the best of its of its class, uh, when whether it's a meal, a beer, in our case, making meat and cider. And I think that those are some of the common denominators across different disciplines, right? You've got these complex, different things coming together and integrating. And, and it's this kind of a drive to, I mean, people that like, you know, are, uh, you know, in the, you know, the, the like dog breeding world or raising horses, like they're always trying to, you know, make the best offspring they can with the best, you know, stock going in there. Like, I think that that's another analogy. There's all of these different pursuits you can have in life to try and achieve uh, perfection or something that's as good as it can be or whatnot. And so I've always been driven like that. And I feel like I was never really like, uh, the best at anything in in my life, I always you know sort of a jack of all trades, trying different things and 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 learning. But when it when it came to meat, I just applied every f- bit of focus I could and every bit of inspiration to try and and make these different products that get that can stand as on their own. Um, next to any wine or port or spirit or beer as being uh, outstanding examples of, of the craft. And so I'm, I guess I'm driven by that in a way, and I, and I know that my staff are as well. And so we're applying ourselves, our creativity and imagination every day to try and come up with these new flavors. And right now, I looked at Untapped the other day, and we've got over 270 different entries on there. And that's in eight years. Um, and a lot of those are super small batches, and we're still doing that. We're still doing extreme home brewing in our test batches, which is kind of fun, even (laughs) though we're now doing, you know, 60 barrel, 2000 gallon batches of cider at the same time. And I think that that, that like, and we're all home brewers at superstition in production, everyone started that way. And some of our folks still do. And I think that that passion, that like not being afraid to try anything at a small level to see what you get is, is just really important to, to what we do. And when you look at a traditional mead, honey, water, and yeast, defining that, it's beautiful. You can make amazing traditional meads that are dry, semi-sweet or sweet. They can have different alcohol levels. They can be made with different honeys that can be just as different as choosing different grains or hops or choosing different wine grape varietals. And you can have a beautiful expression of the terroir of a place and what the bees were doing at a particular time or season. And and that's great. Whenever we have the opportunity to get a unique honey, we, we often will take at least part of that and try and make a traditional mead and see what comes out. I think a traditional mead is kind of like, you know, a lager or a pilsner for a mead maker where there's, there's, especially if it's dry, there's nowhere to hide anything. I mean, your, your, your technique has to be perfect and, and that's cool. And we do that, but you know, as much as I love drinking a pilsner, especially after a beer fest, when you've been chugging, you know, <laughs> crazy imperial stouts and sours for two days, and that's kind of all a brewer wants at that point, right? Or mead maker in our case too. Um, I think the world would be a little boring if that's all that you had, you know, if, if you had only been exposed to one style of beer or one style of mead or wine or ate one kind of food, your life would be pretty darn boring. So, so for me, I think taking inspiration from what craft beer's done, what, what, what's going on with the, with the food world now, even, even what wine and spirits are doing. I mean, people are being so creative and pushing the boundaries so much so that quite often the government doesn't even know what to do with our labels. And sure, we have to, sure. you know, argue our stance. So I, I think that that's something I did right from the beginning and, and, and I couldn't imagine not doing that. And that's applying 
like anything that inspires you trying to duplicate a peanut butter jelly sandwich or an apple pie in a liquid format, um, taking different things that, you know, some of our friends have done and collabs and trying to say, take, okay, let's, let's see if we can make like a mead version that actually tastes kind of like a beer, you know? Um, there's just so many things that we, and then our barrel program, we can talk about that later. Sure, I mean, sure. that's just, I, I just geek out on that to no end. Yeah, you know, I think there's the when you start talking about being the best at something, I think there's you know two different directions. There's that being novel and being an initial first mover, and then there is that incredible process of iteration and fine tuning, tweaking, and um, you know, and building best over a long period of time. Um, you know, and it's it seems like both of those are, are part of your process in some way or another. You know, by uh, coming out with or taking this kind of more flavorful approach, um, you and several other mead maker contemporaries have kind of pushed the conversation in that direction. Um, but the other key piece of that is also fine tuning. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that in a second. But first, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hops products in every package. Visit hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. Also, born out of a basement in Milwaukee a decade ago, Spike has grown to become a leading manufacturer of premium quality brewing equipment. So if you're looking for a reliable system for home or a commercial grade nano system for your brewery, this is the time to buy. Spike is offering craft beer and brewing listeners a special 10% off all three vessel system purchases while supplies last. Visit spikebrewing.com slash craft and enter the code CBB at checkout. Spike Brewing, pursue what's possible. So as I was mentioning before, I think, you know, both of those things of coming up with the idea and something novel, but then also tweaking and fine tuning that so that it stays the best, you know, any first mover has a short window of time to be the best if they create something, but holding on to that position and being considered in that conversation of best over a longer period of time means that you have to stay there. And that is a whole nother challenge. Talk to me a little bit about as you started making mead, how you were able to take those ideas and improve execution and fine tune so that you could achieve the vision for flavor that you had when you started making these. That's a good question too. I would, I would agree with you that the pressure uh, to retain the relevance you've worked so hard to establish is ever present. And that comes up when we'll, we'll do a SWOT analysis, and that's uh, where you analyze your your strengths, your weaknesses, opportunities, and threats as they pertain to uh, your business and maybe um, you know what you're doing in a particular market or a particular aspect. But we we do those sorts of things a couple times a year at our company, and relevance always comes up. How do we continue to maintain relevance? And so you have to, as a business in the craft industry, have the pulse of trends and know what's going on. I think a good example of that, um, our our production manager was passionate about doing a milkshake IPA inspired mead as we were getting into cans. And uh, I don't know, as a maybe a traditionalist, if you told me three years ago, I would be putting my product in cans, it would have taken me a minute to stop laughing. But um, 
as a business person and as someone that sees how how the world's changing and 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 the and the custom customers are are asking for these different packaging formats, um, I would have been a dinosaur if I didn't evolve with that. And so we thought, hey, for our first mead in a can, let's do something crazy. Let's make it fun. And so we we came up with a backseat bingo, sort of a, a 50s nod with the, the thematic design as well um, to like a Shake Shack. And so this is kind of like an orange Julius in a can, carbonated, delicious, super refreshing on the sweet side as most meads happen to be. And um, it was our fastest selling product we ever had released. We came out with our third can mead two weeks ago that's just like a, a mimosa in a can called Bimosa. It's just uh, honey and orange juice in there. And uh, we had 7,500 cans allocated in a day. So by observing trends in our, in this case, cans and milkshake IPAs and doing our version of that in, a, in mead form, um, you're able to stay relevant. And I know that the the margins for us as a business and i know that the in, the, the ratings are never going to be as high on those products and that's okay um we're always going to do our crazy you know multi-year barrel age things that come out and that's where a lot of my passion lies but i also love these cans we're coming out with so by maintaining uh, a, a good assessment of the industry you can keep up with these trends and stay relevant another thing is that we'll, we'll take cues from these different uh, parallel industry. So for example, in our tasting room, I try and put myself in the mindset of, uh, you're, you're behind the bar in the tasting room, which I used to do plenty and customer comes in and says, Oh, I don't know what meat is, which is probably, you know, most customers for sure. What we, what we do is largely unknown to everyone, especially outside of the craft beer world. And what we do is expensive to make expensive to sell. And we've taken that, which is our greatest challenge and turned it into our greatest opportunity, which is we get to define what mead is to so many people, along with, like you said, a few of our contemporaries out there that are pushing the limits and making some amazing products. So if you come in and, and, and you say that to me, I would I would say, all right, well, what do you like to drink? And if you said beer, I'd say, okay, well, we have a couple of meads on tap right now that have hops in them. And all of a sudden you've established a connection in the mind of the consumer that knows what, like maybe they've never really seen a hop unless they're a homebrewer, right? But they're like, okay, cool. I know what hops are. I've heard about that on television commercials. Exactly. I know that's in beer. Sure. And, and we go, hey, try these hopped meads. And then if someone's like, hey, I'm a bourbon drinker. Oh, cool. Well, you know what? We've got this Arizona mesquite honey that we put into bourbon barrels and you can smell and taste the bourbon, but it won't burn because it's only 15% the way it worked, but it's amazing. And then if you're like, yeah, I, I drink wine. Well, cool. We have this whole line of products that we call piments in the mead world. And a piment is when you ferment wine grapes with honey. So a lot of times by trying to figure out how can I make something that's marketable, meaning I can make a connection in the mind of the consumer that's unfamiliar with mead, that also drives innovation with us. And now we have white piments with hops in them. I mean, we it's we start combining all of this stuff and it just gives people that come in to visit us a reason to get excited about what we're doing, to get interested in what we're doing, to share our passion. And I think that by always doing that and, and evolving what, what, what happens in that world, always picking out new barrels. I mean, we've done mead aged in American brandy. We've got a cherry mead with cherry juice. We import it from Frederikstal, the the best cherry wine producer, and they have an oh, orchard in the sure, world sure. in Denmark. So we've got these Frederikstal cherries. We've put Arizona honey in there, and now we've got those. And no one knows this yet, but American cherry brandy barrels. 
and we, we, we put Arizona organic apple cider in with the cherry juice and we ferment it. So we've also got apple brandy barrels. We're going to be doing um, this line or sort of a, I guess, like a, a, a grouping, right, where you're going to have these three bottles where we've got, okay, the apple brandy one, the cherry brandy one, and then a blend of both. And when that comes up, it's inc- I pulled a nail on the cherry brandy barrel the other day with our production manager. It's amazing. It's one of the best things we've ever made. I mean, who's combined all those different – I mean, they're, they're conceptually related, but like, like the reality of acquiring, all, sourcing all this stuff from around the world, these barrels, and making this happen. And that's a great story. And more importantly, it's delicious. And when people <laughs> get to try this, it's going to be so much fun. And so that stuff's happening all the time. Yeah. Let me talk to, about that uh, innovation process for a little bit. Obviously, you are pushing limits. You are making new things. You are envisioning things. Um, but you're dealing with a lot of very expensive raw ingredients. Um, you know, honey is not cheap. Frederickstall cherries are absolutely not cheap. You know, this is, you know, there's not a lot of room for error on this, um, because no one wants to have something go the wrong way. Um, as you all envision this within the production team, within the, the mead making team, um, what does that innovation process look like? Where do the ideas come from? What's that process of testing some ideas before you fully commit? Um, you know, what kind of bench testing do you do? What, you know, how does it move through your innovation process and then ultimately get greenlit? That's a really good question. All right. So let's talk about bench trials for a minute. So we, we have, a. Uh, this, this series called the White Series, where we, we have uh, vanilla and white chocolate aged in New American oak and, and different fruits. Uh, so it started with, uh, with, with berry white, which is raspberries and, and white chocolate, and then we got into blueberry white, etc. And so we haven't introduced a new White Series flavor in a couple of years. And back to that idea of relevance and keeping people excited, keeping the hype going around a product or a line, we're going to do something, and we have not announced this to anyone yet. For the we, we did bench trials, and we've come up with two brand new flavors for the White Series that'll be, uh, well, they're in barrels right now. Um, we haven't uh, normally this would all come out in November. The whole COVID deals pushed our our time frame uh, forwards, and you know for at least a couple of months. But long story short, we did this bench trial process where we got you know a dozen different juices, and we took our sort of our base right, so we could mix that in and then see how it how it tastes. And so that's done at the wine glass level. I mean that's bench trialing it to the tune of ounces at a time and splitting that up, right? And we went through all of these different flavors and we decided that our next fruit in in the white series is going to be mulberry. So we're going to have a mulberry white mead coming out. And it's amazing. It's kind of got the smoothness of blueberry white and 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 almost the tartness of blackberry white, but somewhere in the middle. And it's this perfect fruit flavor. It's an amazing pairing. But we tried all these other fruits, right? And some of them were really good. But that mulberry just stood out as as the best. And so that's done just by mixing things together. And then we do test batches. And so we have 15-gallon, uh, just like like when you kind of get a little more advanced into home brewing, you may buy yourself um, you know, a half-barrel conical. So we have a couple of those. We also have about a Oh, 10 or so 80 gallon fermenters that at one point was the biggest size that we had. And now it's, you know, something that will be probably the smallest size commercial batch that we do. I mean, some of those 15 gallon batches will turn into say two and a half kegs that we put on tap and we'll test out as well to, to the customers in our tasting room. But when it comes to, to, to that level, our production staff and anyone that works at Superstition, I don't care what you do. If you've got an idea for a meter cider, you can go bring it up at a staff meeting, work with our production staff. Anyone can make anything they can envision. I don't care what it costs, uh, at least at that size. And so 
some companies, I think, and, and I have a lot of friends that do this, they really uh, promote innovation amongst their staff. And I think not only does that get you buy-in from your folks, when you've got someone that works in the tasting room that says, hey, I helped put that label on. I came up with this idea. I came up with part of this name. It's such a great way to bring people together. And it's a way to, I mean, when you have 270 products, it's let's be let's be honest, it's hard to come up with really good new names. I mean, so many things that we call like the untapped test, We're like, all right, let's run. Oh, no, that's taken. That's <laughs> taken. And so by you know, bringing everyone to, I mean, we do this every Tuesday afternoon, by the way, you know, we, we go through like our sales and production meeting and, and there's usually a time where I'm like, all right, we've got these three new things. We think they're coming out in August or September. We need a name for this and this. And then we just start talking about different ideas. Oftentimes there's a, a little bit of liquid inspiration there at those meetings, which is sure, cool. Sure. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how, how that goes. Um, but I think the big question is how do you not mess it up, right? Especially when you're going to throw some spaghetti on the wall to the tune of thousands of dollars or more uh, in a batch. And I think you have to have proven concepts, and, and anyone does by the time you get to this point. But that took years and years of trial and development. I mean, from from my home brewing to, to starting commercially, eventually, you're going to run through all of these different yeast strains, probably, right? Whether it's a brewery or a meadery. And I've got to think everyone goes through a lot of the same stuff. You're going to try different temperatures of fermentation. You're going to get better equipment and you're going to be able to control those temperatures. You're going to figure out about, you know, all of these different aspects and nutrient regimes that help you have a happy, healthy fermentation. You're going to eventually upscale as you know at least commercially but i think the home brewing analogy is the same too you can keep getting better quality equipment better ways to bottle and package whatever you're doing to increase quality which ultimately is going to help the aging process right um i mean our bottling line now it's amazing what that thing can do i mean compared to how we first started with a gravity sure. filler now i mean our bottles are getting rinsed and gassed and filled and purged of of, of any ambient air i mean the the ability to and, you know and we use like the highest quality core and, and caps and all of that stuff. So when you don't spare any expense in the ingredients that you're choosing or the packaging or the equipment, you do the, the very best that you can afford as a home brewer or as a company, then you're going to make the best product you can. And if you just keep pushing that forwards and investing in our case through you know loans that are astronomical to us at this time, it's still amazing what we've accomplished, you... You just keep upping the game of quality, and and that's super important. That is always at the top of our mind. I want to talk to you about specific ingredients and some process. Before we do that, uh, this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications. Publishers of Goza bring a classic German beer for the modern era by Fal Allen. Goza explores the history of this lightly sour wheat beer style, its traditional ingredients, and special brewing techniques. Learn about salinity, spices, and lactic acid as you experiment with Goza recipes from some of the best-known craft brewers of our time. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. So ingredients and process. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you found a means of speeding up the mead process. Uh, I know you've mentioned before uh, in the, the Breakout Brewer and Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine that uh, uh, 
you expected when you started making mead to have to sit around for years and years and, until off flavors wore off. Um, you know, this is a, it's been kind of a common trope with mead in general that uh, it's a long, long process to have it clean itself up and make for something drinkable. Obviously, if you were trying to make one by Thanksgiving and get it done in five months, that's a whole different kind of time frame. And at a commercial scale, sitting on something for four years, no one does that. You know, no one in the beer world, no one in the wine world, no one, you know, other than some bourbon producers or, uh, you know, uh, scotch producers uh, cares to age any product for that kind of length. And when you do, obviously everything gets more expensive. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, your initial foray into that and how you kind of solved some of that mead making problem of time. Sure. So when I got started eight years ago, there was very little information out there. Um, you know, Vicki Rowe that runs uh, gotmead.com, if anyone's listening and, and is interested in making me, that's a great resource. Tons of recipes, lots of great information, some really talented people contributing on there. Um, last time I checked, it was, you know, like 25 or 50 bucks a year to join to get access to all this information. So so I, I found Got Mead. I had, you know, Ken Schramm's book, The Complete Mead Maker. That's the classic homebrewing book on mead. And started, you know, trying to figure out how do I make this stuff better, right? And so everything starts with really good ingredients. But what was becoming popularly known and, and even shared on the, on the internet and in forums uh, at, at the time, again, seven, eight years ago, was staggered nutrient additions or how do you manage a fermentation? And so one of the big differences between beer, wine, and, and mead making is that it's critical to manage our fermentation. And the idea is that a traditional mead with honey, water, and yeast doesn't have enough nutrients to keep the yeast optimally healthy in that environment. And so as yeast begins to do its work, there are different stressors that occur. And so an obvious win is alcohol, right? We all, as, as home brewers, look at the, you know, the, the specs for a particular yeast strain, and it'll say, oh, this can ferment 12 to 14% or whatever that yeast strain can do. Well, when you get to the higher limit of that, the yeast is going to be pretty stressed, and that's where off flavors are going to be created. This one way, right? So you want to reduce the stress in the fermentation and you want to provide nutrients. So yeast nutrients, yeast energizers, whatever your homebrew store has and whatever it says is recommended on that. I started doing that as a homebrewer and that scaled up nicely uh, when it came to, to doing my stuff commercially. And it, it doesn't mean that people don't do this in beer and wine. This, there's definitely examples of it, but it's definitely integral to making mead. So if you're doing something that has fruit in the beginning or at some point in the fermentation, there's probably going to be some really great nutrients from, from those fruits going in that are going to be beneficial to the yeast and, and that fermentation. And so that's a great thing. But a lot of times you're going to be putting in your, your special ingredients in secondary or after your primary fermentation is all done. So especially in that case, well, you can certainly hide things or have, you know, all flavors sort of blend or age out quicker, it would seem, by, by having different ingredients. You want to avoid that in the first place. And so when um, I, was a, I was a paramedic and wound up uh, acquiring uh, an old oxygen tank and regulator, and that, that made... Um, a world of difference uh, beyond 
you know, what you can introduce by stirring in the beginning, uh, say when you're mixing up a batch of, you know, parts per million oxygen by taking uh, an O2 stone and having pure uh, medical or food grade oxygen, which you can go buy food grade oxygen tanks at, you know, most like welding gas supply stores. So when it's food grade oxygen, they they filter the gas so that there's like there's no oil or contaminants in there. So anyways, by, by putting food grade oxygen into the first third of your fermentation, you're going to help the yeast grow the acrospore it needs when it's beginning that phase of its of its life cycle, um, preparing for mitosis. And that's that's one way that that yeast will scrub oxygen out of uh, out of wort or must um, when it's going through that process. You do not want to give it oxygen after that's done. And the different you know there's you know these billions and billions of cells in your fermentation. Um, they're not all going to be at the exact same space in time. So what what we do is we'll we'll give that food grade oxygen gone through a stone to bring the, the micron size down so it's assimilable by the yeast, we'll do that for the first third of fermentation. And so if someone's getting way into home brewing, then that, that might be worth your, you know, you know, a couple hundred bucks to pick up a tank and, and, and get your O2 stones really cheap and then getting it filled is cheap. So it's just another piece of equipment to invest in. If you don't have that just by stirring, um, or degassing, which is, all right, this is kind of the same thing and this is important. And it's not something I ever thought about. Well, I mean, in the beginning, right? Until I heard this. But degassing is is stirring your, your fermentation to disrupt the CO2 and have it come out. So we all have, you know, blow off tubes or an airlock or whatever, and you see the CO2 leaving. Well, when you like shake a carboy or in our case, pump like the liquid in and back out to another valve, you are disrupting the CO2 and it's going to come, I mean, you're going to get not all of it, but, but the bulk of the CO2 out in this process of, of just stirring. So at the homebrew level, you can buy, um, like a uh, drill with a paddle bit that kind of folds up at the end and you can, don't get greedy. Cause as soon as you get greedy, you're going to have like a volcano coming out of your fermenter, which is, it's just going to happen. has to, um, but by doing that, you're degassing. So, you know, CO2, while it's something we want in the end product of anything carbonated, it's actually toxic as far as the yeast is concerned. It's unhealthy for the yeast. So by removing the CO2 or degassing, you're going to help um, provide this optimal environment for fermentation. Again, keeping the yeast less stressed. So we're degassing for the first half of fermentation. We're going to add nutrients for the first half of fermentation. We're going to add oxygen for the first third of fermentation. And then there are also other um, nutrients you can get at the homebrew store that you can put in after halfway, if you want, especially if something's getting to be really high gravity. Something else I started doing early on was if I was going to be over about 14% ABV for my, you know, my, my goal for this product, um, I would double pitch. And so you want to put in, you know, a little more yeast than you need um, for something that would be a sessionable product, for example. So enough yeast, treating it the right way during fermentation. That's, those are all just critical steps that, you know, the oxygen thing is an expense, but otherwise anyone can do any of those other things and you can make delicious, perfect mead by sticking to that. Now I did skip over sanitation. That goes without saying, but anyone sure, that's a home sure. brewer is going to bring that to play because we're not using any heat in our product. It's all like cold side brewing. So anything that touches your product has to be clean and sanitized, but you go through those other sorts of steps and anyone can make delicious traditional mead, um, you know, in, in, in four weeks, it might not be the most interesting thing. There's certainly still a benefit to time when it comes to different things, integrating, maybe it's, there's like something just a little bit off and that's going to fade, but it's so much better than being, you know, significantly off. So 
another part of that theory is you know when when yeast is is finally done and it's it's you know aggregating flocculating settling down some of those cells are going to rupture and so that's when some of those off flavors can be released during autolysis so by pumping or racking in the wine world by racking off of of your yeast as soon as primary fermentation is done that's something else that's important and then there's fining and filtering. Um, sure. Again, there's all different levels of this that you do as a home brewer. Um, I would say read the directions because I know <laughs> I didn't a couple times. <laughs> I was like, this right. fining isn't working. But um, in the as a home brewer, you're always concerned that if you, you know, if you if you fine or filter, you're going to lose flavor, right? Well, if you do it right in the wine world, filtering can actually be referred to as polishing. You can help kind of get something that's maybe not ideal out of there just by filtering it. I, since I started filtering, I've never had, well, in, in like one case, I'm thinking we actually had to change the name of a product because the flavor did change significantly when we filtered it, but almost with, with one exception, I'd say out of hundreds of times that we filtered things, it actually just kind of gets better. So don't be afraid to, you know, follow the instructions on fining. And, and if you get into, um, you know, like a, a Buen Vino, um, like three plate, you know, filter as a home brewer. I mean, that's great. I used that for commercial batches for years and ran through, I used to have just boxes of like hundreds of those pads because that was not meant for what we <laughs> right. were doing. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, so that's another thing as far as, um, you know, quality goes. And again, as you know, you scale up, you can, you know, invest more, whether you're home brewing or commercial, just in better equipment. And then, you know, it just, things become easier. You can move bigger volumes through whatever your equipment is. With yeast itself, um, do you have do you have you settled on a single strain? Do you uh, you know is it uh, based on the goal for any individual mead? Do you keep a couple of different lines going for contextual stuff, um, or do you have a workhorse that you depend on consistently? That's a good question. Uh, I would say yes to all of those questions. We do have uh, a house yeast. I would recommend that. People out there interested in making mead that's similar to our style, experiment with different strains of yeast that are designed for white wine specifically, but we also have strains of yeast that were designed for red wine, and we've done ale yeast, we've co-fermented with Saison yeast and our house yeast, we've used Whitbread ale yeast. I haven't actually used a Belgian strain yet, that's on my list, it's been on my list for eight years, I just <laughs> haven't done that. Sure, um, sure. There are, there are, but... I mean, there's plenty of beer yeast that'll be awesome for meads, plenty of wine yeast. So yeah, it really does depend on the product, but we do have uh, a house strain and that's one of two or three proprietary things that we have at Superstition because I worked so hard for sure. years trying everything out there. <laughs> and I think that what we make really does have a slightly unique flavor profile uh, compared to a lot of even other great meads that are out there. And so I'm pretty happy with that. Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about honey. Um, you know, from a traditional mead standpoint, obviously honey variety has a humongous impact on flavor. Um, talk to me a little bit about hunt your honey selection based on what the end result uh, goal is for specific meads. Cool. So when I started uh, this company, I learned a couple of things and just used logic and reason as best as I could thinking, all right, if I'm going to, for example, make a product and I want to be able to go from five gallons in this test batch and one day make a thousand gallons, I'm going to have to be able to rely on the ingredients being the same down the road at that level. And so I asked the question, what is the 
most available type of local honey we can get. And so there's two answers to that. So in Arizona, wildflower honey, and if you're listening and, and don't know, wildflower honey means that it's either a blend of different honeys or that there's not a single nectar source the bees were predominantly going to to acquire their nectar. So so wildflower honey can be a lot of different things. Um, I've never had on that note, a bad honey. I've had weird honeys, but our wildflower honey, I would just describe it as like a classic honey flavor. And it's kind of a great palette for anything that we do. But the other thing that's a bit unique to Arizona and the Southwest is mesquite honey. And mesquite is not a barbecue flavor. It's actually a tree that grows in the desert and it flowers. And there's so many of these mesquite bosques. It's the Spanish word for forest that, that are along dry riverbeds in Arizona and beekeepers will go there and it makes amazing honey. And it has, a spicy character to it that's that stands out from the wildflower honey and so sometimes we'll be thinking about a particular fruit or an herb or a barrel that maybe this bit of spice would be complementary with so when we make lagermas de oro that's usually like when i go into our tasting room my staff hands me a glass of that every time i walk in and that's our bone dry 15 percent usually arizona mesquite honey traditional me that we age in bourbon barrels and i love it i love it chill like white wine temperature it's so refreshing but that spicy character of the honey and it's subtle but it's it's there it just goes great with that bourbon character you're pulling out of the staves so we will try and and, and align um you know either like for when we do vanilla beans you know i don't necessarily want that spiciness i want that smoothness of the wildflower honey so that's what we'll use for tahitian honeymoon and sometimes if you're using like a crazy amount of adjuncts you're going to overpower what that honey is going to do anyway sure, so sure. it just depends um there's also you take price into account with that now Everything that, that anyone's ever seen from Superstition in a bottle has, that's a mead has been made with Arizona honey. When we came up with our canned line, I wanted to design a product that would be positioned on the shelf comparable to a double IPA. So you can get our canned meads for you know $5.50 to $6 for a 16-ounce can on the shelf. But in order to do that and still have it make sense for us as a company, we couldn't use Arizona honey. It's too expensive. So we, we tested different international honeys. And so we have honey from Brazil and honey from India that is delicious. It's from our same supplier, Crockett's Honey and Tempe, um, but because they do buy international honeys as well. Um, they, they have that available. Uh, Bee Seasonal has it available. They're a, they're a great company to get honey from if you're listening. And so we've bought from both of those guys these these international honeys, and we've figured out what works delicious in a delicious way for our canned meads. So I... I and, because our canned meads have so many different flavors that we're going crazy. Like you'll, you may see a traditional canned meat from us one day. Um, there's a reason why we would do that with, with tax taxes as well. But um, our point is to do some really cool, crazy flavors in our cans. And so because we're doing that, the honey, while it's still important, and that's where the, the majority, or, or in some cases, all of the fermentable sugars coming from, um, we're using so many adjuncts that um, the honey takes a back seat in a way, or or at least it's kind of you know driving at the same right. time. So so yeah, that's um, that's it's definitely uh, important to choose like a cool honey, but it's never more important than with a traditional mead. Sure. And as you get into um, barrels, you may want to like you know think what character this wood or this barrel is gonna gonna provide, what honey is gonna align with that. Um, but that's kind of the story of uh, of us and honey. How much variation in terms of how honey performs 
in the production, in the process of, uh, of mead making, uh, you know, is involved there. I mean, when we talk to brewers, there's certain like, you know, new malts, new hop, uh, crop years of, of hops all can have performance impacts and there's some variation, uh, that they have to pay attention to, um, for you coming at it from a mead maker's perspective, uh, do you see a difference between, um, different types of honey or is there a measurable way of, of predicting based on, you know, uh, what the gravity of that honey is? or the other kind of metrics that you use to understand how this specific honey might perform through your process? That's a good question too. All right, so when you're talking about the sugar content, honeys will vary to some degree by their moisture and sugar content. So when you look at the honey that that, that we're, we're dealing with, and I think this is true for, for most honeys, right? So think about you're making a homebrew batch of five gallons and you take one gallon of honey, that would be 12 pounds. And you're going to use, so you got this gallon of honey, you got four gallons of water, you mix it up, you've got a five gallon batch of mead. Every pound of honey in every five gallons of that mixture will equal 1% ABV if you ferment it dry. And that scales up. So that can change a little bit. And you're not going to really know that until you mix up your honey, right? And you could, you know, you could do that side by side, and it's going to vary a touch. But for the most part, that that's a really good way to look at recipes and as far as like the sort of alcohol content you're going to get from honey. Now, there's a honey that's that's very, I don't know if you can, it's almost impossible to get in America, but melopona bees are stingless bees in Central and South America. And so I'm a partner in a Brazilian meadery, and we're about to start using melopona honey there. And these bees... Um, Instead of making like, say, 60 to 100 pounds of honey a year, like Arizona bees can do, they make about five pounds a year. Oof. So it's super expensive. And even in Brazil. And it's it's like the the moisture, con- it's ridiculous. All right. So when it's you measure. It's your Kopi Luwak of. Uh... Oh, yeah. oh, totally. Yeah. This, this, yeah. And I know um, a friend of mine, uh, Carvin Wilson, is one of the most talented uh, homebrew uh, mead makers in the world. Um, he actually said that that he made a, a homebrew mead with this. But this Melopona honey is so unique. It pours out kind of like Anchemima syrup. Like, I mean, it's got that like consistency to it. Like, it just pours. It's not like honey that kind of drips, right? Yeah. And the sugar content, when we've measured it, is actually higher. Huh. than our Arizona honey. And so there are completely different species of bees. I mean, there's over 400 melopona species themselves making these honeys. But again, that's kind of a weird sure, rabbit hole to sure. go down. <laughs> but for the most part, the honey you're going to buy here, it's going to have a pretty consistent sugar yeah. content, yeah. a pretty consistent moisture content. Bees actually know that they have to get the moisture content below about 18% in the hive, and they line up and flap their wings to dry it out <laughs> before they seal it in the honeycomb. That way, they that's how they stabilize it. And yeah. so it's hyperosmotic, right? Like there's so much pressure, osmotic pressure in in that honey that the yeast and bacteria that's in the air around us can't ferment it, or else bees would be making mead themselves, right? For sure. So, so, so then there's just okay. What what nectar source did the bees go to to get this honey? You're gonna actually have like citrus aromas and flavors in in orange blossom honey. That's really kind of cool. And so when you're designing a recipe, you take that into consideration. And so all these different honeys are going to have different flavor and right, aroma profiles, right. which is a lot of part of the fun of the game. Uh, a really cool example is when you caramelize honey, you you can use that and that would be making a style of mead called a boche. And so when you when you cook honey, which we've done as well, and we've done that for for primary fermentation, we've also blended that in for back sweetening in secondary well, you're going to have caramel and marshmallow flavors coming out. That's just amazing. So you can chemically change 
the honey just by cooking it. Uh, it's a lot like when you caramelize onions at home, you know, like, right. it, I mean, a raw onion, well, it might be good in guacamole or salsa. You probably, you know, once you cook that thing and it gets like, you don't want to put raw onions on a steak, but sure. man, you cook those things and they're delicious and sweet. So, so yeah, you can change the way your honey tastes yourself. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about uh, ingredients and the way that you add them to your meat. So you get through your meat making process. You've got your base meat. Um, where you know, as you start adding, you know, and uh, say something like a uh, uh, berry-based mead, uh, where does the ingredient addition come into that process, uh, or do you do it while they're you know, on a secondary process after you've pulled yeast off? Uh, I assume with that kind of high alcohol that you don't reuse yeast as you might otherwise do in a brewing world, um, and so that kind of you know contamination process is not as important of a consideration, um, or you know. Is there some benefit to still having some fermentation going on while you do this? Talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the different ingredients you use and how they play into the process. Good question. So um, to answer the yeast question, we use fresh, dry yeast that we rehydrate yeah. for every fermentation. Um, we've we've used some liquid yeast, um, like when we use ale yeast, for example, when co-fermenting. But the vast majority of what we do is a is a brand new pitch every time. Um, it costs a little more money. Um, than, than reusing yeast. But again, that's one of the variables of repeatability that we want to handle ourselves. So we're managing that by using fresh yeast. So again, investing in the front end of your, of your product is important. Um, th not that that's the only way to do it. You know, I'm sure there's lots of folks that you, you, can, you can harvest yeast. That would, that would be a fun thing to do. Um, so, so that's the yeast piece of that. When it comes to adding fruit, now when we do a piment or when we do a sizer, which is apple cider and honey fermented together. Um, I've, I've, we did a session mead where we ad added some water to bring the, the ABV down of the grape juice. But um, for anything that's ever been in a bottle, um, that is, there's no water there, right? All the liquids coming from the fruit juice. And if you do that much fruit juice, fruit contribution on the front end of a fermentation, it's going to translate into the flavor on the back end. A lot of times if you... Um, if, if, if you don't take that approach and you, you skimp on the amount of fruit that goes into the front end and you don't do anything during fermentation or after, you may not get the fruit character that you're looking for. So remember that during fermentation, a lot of that is going to blow off through um, you know, the CO2 leaving your product. It's going to carry you know, these chemical compounds that would contribute to aroma and flavor with it. And so you have to sort of overload it in a way in the front if you really want that to shine through. And when you drink our piments or sizers, you don't have to use your imagination to know that it's coming from this apple or grape base. So that's one example. Uh, another example is you could do um, a traditional mead and you could take whole fruit that you chop up. Like one thing that we, we do once a year, we're, we're not going to do it this year for the first time. Uh, long story short, production schedule, COVID and whatnot, but we'll get back into it next year. Um, but several times now, we've gotten Masamoto peaches from California and they're a famous um, orchard and they provide some of the most interesting uh, fruit to especially sours across California. And so we took these Masamoto Suncrest peaches and we froze them with liquid nitrogen. And we did that part just to have fun and we got to make beer ice cream on the side. But we were 
breaking down cell walls with immediately freezing and in some ways perhaps even disinfecting what could be on the fruit, right? And we put all of that into a sanitized sack and just dunked this giant bag in an 80-gallon fermenter and just left it for months. And so, you know, alcohol is a solvent and it's going to extract some of those fruit flavors. So you can just put in fruit and secondary. But if you're going to, to do that, you've got to use a lot of fruit to really get a fruit-forward mead. Now, you may want to balance that with some other ingredients. You may want to have the honey shine a little bit more than the fruit does. Um, and we've done all those different things. We'll even put fruit juice in or whole fruit during the middle or at the end of fermentation so that we know that it's not going to pull off all of the aroma and flavor that we want to retain. Sometimes we'll even take fruit and put it, just shove it in a barrel with a funnel. Um, I talked to a friend of mine who's the president of our local Whiskey Row homebrew club here in Prescott yesterday on the phone. And we were catching up because once a year, he goes to Colorado and brings us back 112 pounds of frozen tart Colorado pie cherries from a roadside stand. And when we get those, uh, we usually just shove them into a barrel with like a really cool mead that's doing something else. And and that, that makes a big mess when you're racking that barrel and requires a little more work on the back end. Um, so anyways, my point is that from, from whole fruit, um, we, we've got a wine um, press. We've got a right. fruit crusher distemmer. We do wine from scratch with grapes delivered overnight from California. We've used Arizona grapes. We've done that with blackberries and cherries. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can put fruit into a product um, from the beginning, the middle, the end, in a barrel after, and we've done all of that. So those are all really um, dependent on the recipe and your goals. And for us in production, oftentimes just the logistics, right? How does this work into our production schedule and when does it get here? So a lot of times those decisions are made on the fly and that's how we come up with really fun one-off things. Um, and a lot of times we, you know, we plan it a year out. Uh, and then when you talk about other ingredients, um, something I learned from my buddy Derek, who's a, a brewer owner at Moxa Brewing right now, uh, is using a hop back to infuse different flavors. Uh, when he was brewing uh, at Abnormal, we went out and did this, um, this awesome collab. I brought him a bucket of Arizona mesquite honey, made this crazy stout, and he was showing me how you can put, you know, not just hops, but cacao nibs, vanilla beans, coffee in, into this hop back and circulate it. And so when I was home brewing, and even when I started commercially, I would shove vanilla beans in a barrel to make Tahitian honeymoon. And six, eight weeks later, it started tasting like vanilla and you were stoked. Well, now we'll put vanilla beans in a hop back and we can set our pump on on a really low setting and come back in in two days and it's like vanilla better than ever before. And so you go from eight weeks to two days. So that's something that, uh, you know, I, you could probably rig up as a home brewer as well uh, is figure out how to have a small hop back. And so you, there's so many things you can put in there that won't dissolve and break up. Uh, anything that will kind of dissolve or break up or get funky, like especially like whole fruit additions, I'd recommend using like, you know, sanitized nylon sack or whatnot or hop sure. sack. So. Yeah. On a homebrew scale, you have to also be really careful about oxygen ingress and that kind of thing because um, the pumps that are available for homebrewers may not quite, um, you know, work at the standard that, uh, uh, you know, professional and, and commercial brewers uh, and meat makers uh, have access to. Um, but that recirculation process has grown increasingly important, whether it's in dry hopping or whether it's in, uh, you know, fruit additions or sugar additions or whatnot. And, uh, um, you know, obviously these ingredients are expensive and people want to, you know, consumers when they buy something, they want to feel the impact of that. And uh, to get that maximum pop, um, that's, that can be a great way to do it. Talk to me a little bit about, like, so last night, uh, in order to do some research for this podcast, 
I, I grabbed a bottle of uh, Juicius Caesar and uh, a bottle of Vanilla Marion. And I was struck by the blend of berries in a, in a uh, mead like Vanilla Marion and also the way that you envision this kind of you know vanilla along with these berries to accomplish certain flavor goals. Talk to me about how you envision that um, and then build that kind of blend from a sensory perspective to achieve a flavor goal like that. All right. That's a good question. So this kind of goes back when you're talking about vanilla and berries to how we came up with the white series and it was a happy accident. And so uh, my wife and I were were still 50, 50 business partners. Her name's Jen to this, to this day. And um, back in the beginning, like we would come up with, we would bench trial by ourselves because there was no one else. And we, I had, had made um, Tahitian honeymoon and there was way too much vanilla in there. And when you leave vanilla beans in something for too long, you start to get some bitterness from the husk. And we decided, okay, this, like, this might get better like you know, in six months or whatever, but how can we take this crazy overpowering vanilla flavor and turn it into something that we can, we can use as a product? And started asking ourselves that question, what goes with vanilla? And well, we thought, wow, white chocolate. So we tried every preparation of white chocolate we could find. <laughs> Um, we already knew, and vanilla is, you know, pretty much what defines white chocolate right, and the flavor right. anyways. And we're like, well, what go, What would you have white chocolate with? And we're like, well, I mean, like dark fruit just sounds perfect. Like you're thinking about pies and torts and, um, you know, maybe some craft cocktails that we've had. Like those flavors just go together great. And so we started messing around with different fruit juices, different white chocolates. And, and, and we were able to figure out this amazing combination, this recipe that created the white series. And so we have really embraced vanilla and, and different, uh, you know, dark fruits in a lot of the products that we do over the years. It doesn't always work out like cherries, for example, are kind of finicky where like just cherry and honey by itself probably going to knock it out of the park. You start putting other things in and it's either going to be amazing or medicinal, right? And I remember one time I was like mixing up some Belgian dark candy sugar with a cherry mead just to see what it would be like. And I was like, this is so good. I can taste everything. It's like a little caramel, a little this and that. And um, this is when our production facility was in our current tasting room in Prescott. And I took um, some glasses of this out to some customers. I was like, hey, who wants to try this new thing we just whipped up? And uh, I remember this gal took a sip and made this awful face and she goes Robitussin and I tried I went ah you're right. This tastes like cough medicine. And I, and it's because cherry is such a prevalent flavor in cough medicine that as soon as you add it, this, this other kind of caramel and this little twang that was like, it was like, okay, I, I can't do this. But there are other things that grow great with cherries. Like we've done, we've done coffee and almonds with, with a cherry mead with a, as a Mostra collab that was out of this world. And so, man, cherries can go really either way. Right. Um, but, but dark fruit and vanilla it just it just goes together. It's like a perfect pairing of flavors. How do you um, kind of tweak the fine edges on that, though? You know, one of the things that struck to uh, struck me about uh, just tasting it was the way that uh, you know it almost had a Pinot Noir character to it, with a little uh, like barrel edge. You know, vanilla adding that kind of wood aged vanilla and character to it um, certainly had a little more sweetness than a typical Pinot Noir, but it at that kind of dark berry note 
didn't come across necessarily as sweet berry as much as it came through as, you know, almost this berry flavor filtered through a, a wine type filter. Uh, and I'm curious about how you build that kind of vision and push it in that direction um, in order to have it express in a way like that rather than just kind of pushing out there as sweet fruit dessert kind of deal. That's a good question. I just remembered a story. Um, it's probably five years ago. We just opened our tasting room here in Prescott and I had this dry blackberry meat. And um, there's a guy working for us at the time that was really into wine. And I brought this dry blackberry meat out to him and I told him it was a Pinot Noir. And he tried it and was like, wow, that's really good. I'm like, what do you think? A friend of mine just gave me this, you know? And uh, he totally thought it was wine. I was like, dude, that's meat. So I, I realized that when you find dark fruit that has uh, a tannic backbone to balance the sweetness that usually is, is persistent and certainly a lot of what we do and a lot of meats, you can create a flavor profile and a mouthfeel and an overall experience that's very similar to like a late harvest red wine, um, certainly ports, things like sure. that. So, so yeah, I, I think that like if you, if you, for in our case, like when you have blueberry white, it's so smooth. Um, and when you have blackberry white, it's, it's definitely got like a nice tannic punch in there. And so when you stack these different types of fruit juices, so blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries, you're getting tartness, you're getting sweetness, you're getting mouthfeel, the honey's contributing to that, the vanilla is sort of smoothing it all out. And, and when you had Vanilla Marion, that bottle, we made that in 2017. So that's been sitting around <laughs> for, for a <laughs> for a while. I mean, you're talking about a three-year-old mead right now from, because that was the first thousand gallon batch of anything we put into three, seven fives. And because we've done so many other things, it took a while to sell through that. Yeah. And I, I cracked one of those recently and I'm like, Hey, this is a three-year-old bottle of mead. And as long as that's stored properly, I mean, it's just out of this world. And I think that all of those things really integrate over time in the bottle. There are a lot of wines. Um, I know like Rioja from Spain is classified in part based on the years it rests in the bottle after it's already made before they release it to get to those Reserva, Gran right. Reserva, you know, denominations. So that's a whole nother thing that I wish we had the ability to do as a company was to, to you know, spend the time it takes to make something great and then forget about it for years <laughs> in a bottle. And I mean, we have a reserve program where you can experience some of that. There are some examples like Vanilla Marion that are out in the market today that are still, that are three years old. Um, but most of what we do, you just don't have right, that ability. Right. Um, you brought up um, Juicius Caesar. Um, that's, that's something that I w would take the complete opposite approach on when it comes to aging. It's got hops. Sure. So um, while it will still taste good down the road, it's going to stand up to aging like as far as the quality goes, but the, the hop flavor is definitely going to fade. So anything we do with coffee or hops, um, and even vanilla to a point, the vanilla will also, it'll integrate so much that it'll fade away, you know, like Tahitian honeymoon. I, I mean, that's made to drink right. when it comes out. I mean, it's going to taste good in a year, but, um, vanilla Marion's a little bit different animal there because you do have all these other things going on. I think it's a really cool thing to age, but when we're doing hops and citrus, I mean, those just sure. pair so well. I mean, think how many, when you're reading about hop characteristics and you're deciding what to use for your next eye, 
IPA, I mean, so many of those flavor profiles are coming from the citrus world. You know, obviously there's like, you, know, you think about every, I mean, sometimes there's these really cool tropical flavors like Samba hops, but you know, for Juicius Caesar, we wanted to use, you know, Citra and we've used Amarillo before. We wanted citrusy flavors to pair with that. And think about honey. Honey goes with everything. I mean, honey even goes with mustard. I had honey mustard the other day as like a, a side for my burger. I mean, you can put honey with everything. So, I mean, it's just great with hops and citrus as well. But if you're getting Juicius Caesar or, or War Honey or anything with hops, and I recommend, you know, enjoying that for sure, fresh. For sure. Um, the way we normally finish off the podcast is, um, you know, kind of a consistent question. That is, what does success look like for you and for Superstition Meadery? Um, you know, how will you know when you've achieved it? What does it look like? Um, you know, and what's the what's the end goal for you with this? I think that the the most honest answer to that question, the first thing I thought about when you asked that, success looks like me not worrying about losing my house and car. So <laughs> hey, that's- it's like that's the honest answer, man. Like we are all in. Yeah, so yeah. there are no investors in our company. It's just my wife and I. Um, like I, I said earlier on, we maxed out a credit card to get started. Our first expansion was five credit cards and a home equity loan maxed out. Um, that's been covered now, but now we have three SBA loads. Like we are like driving this train as fast as we can without running off the rails. And it makes sense because we've got momentum. We've got the most amazing fans in the industry. We're making just delicious stuff, new formats all the time. Our tasting room, like as since we reopened, it's like our numbers are as good as any time of the year. We're about to open the world's first mead and food pairing restaurant in Phoenix. We are doing a historic renovation of a building from 1928. It's a $2 million project. Um, I don't know that anyone's done that in the history of our industry. I mean, for mead specifically and for a restaurant like that. Um, I mean, that that's just amazing. We're about to break ground on a warehouse across the street from our production facility. And I would say that when all of those things come to fruition and I have a, there's a regulatory thing I'm juggling right now too, on how to have actually more winery licenses in the state of Arizona, because we're going to, we're planning to exceed our, our annual production cap in the near future as well. Um, when all of those solutions come into fruition, which will be at some point in the middle of 2021, we're going to be at a place where I think I won't have to worry about losing my house and cars anymore. And so that would probably be when I would say, okay, we've done it, you know. But but last May, like this time last year, we were just named, my wife and I, the 2019 National Small Business Persons of the Year by the SBA. We went to Washington, D.C., and out of 30 million small businesses, we're named the best in the country, which is amazing. Sure, and beyond, sure. I mean, it's, ama- it's so cool to win a medal at the Mazer Cup. That's like the highest honor in our field. It's like the GABF for Mead. Um, that's awesome. But to be recognized beyond the mead and craft beverage industry as one of the best companies of its kind in the country or there by the world, that was amazing. I mean, that really felt like we had achieved some level of success and recognition. Um, and so that, that was just amazing for our, our confidence as business folks and for our staff and for the industry. It was it, it made a statement for mead as well. And I think that that built, uh, you know, in, in combination with everything we're building is going to lead to a real 
feeling of success in the middle of next year. And if we can prove that our, uh, for us, remote, you know, out of town concept of having a retail establishment in Phoenix will work with everything that we believe in with our customer service and everything, the stories that we tell, that we could duplicate that concept in any city around the world with the right partners. So that's something like our mission is to reintroduce the world's oldest fermented beverage to mankind. That's not just our town or Arizona, it's the country, it's the world. We've been focusing on helping to grow the mead industry, second only to our own company. Um, I've helped write legislation that was introduced to Congress. Like we're we're working with the SBA to try and get mead its own category in the Code of Federal Regulations. Hopefully we'll have an answer on that this fall. So my wife and I have been so involved with trying to grow our industry as a whole and just continuing to introduce mead as this amazing beverage that you've never had to so many people out there. And I think another sort of like indicator for, for success is uh, a couple of years ago, Budweiser started making fun of mead with the right, Bud Knight and right. those commercials. I mean, the biggest alcohol producer in the world, the 25th most powerful brand of any company in the world was spending hundreds of millions of dollars, presumably, on advertising, introducing the concept of mead to people in, you know, NCAA and NFL games. That's hysterical. I mean, remember when they were making fun of bitter beer face and then IPAs became like the most popular style <laughs> right, of beer? Right. So not that mead's going to become the most popular style of beer, but I think that there are so many cool indicators and that five years from now, every craft beer bar in the country is going to have at least one tap handle with mead on it, just like they have cider now. Well, your energy and enthusiasm are contagious, Jeff, and uh, the ambition that you have is matched by a talent and a drive that uh, I can just hear as you're talking about it. Um the passion is fantastic. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Before we go, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Old Orchard supplies juice blends from Beer City, USA. Hopsteiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products. Spike is your source for reliable home and nano systems. Put Goza brewing a classic German beer for the modern era on your reading list. And craft beer and brewing's all access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. If people want to learn more about Superstition Meadery and what you do, uh, where do they find you, Jeff? I would go to our website. Uh, we have a web store um, where you can you can access our products from 40 states in D.C. I just uh, posted your amazing article on us, which I think is hands down the best story written about superstition and the meat industry at large. And if you go to our social media, we just posted a link to a video that came out a couple days ago that will really show you the ins and outs of our production facility, our tasting room, and you'll learn some more stories about meat. Cool. Uh, again, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Jeff. Cheers. Cool. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.